Where would you say it is the hardest to follow Jesus in 2022? We're going to talk about that. Plus, gotcha sermon clips. Are they good, bad, and what is the future of our church? We're going to be having guest Corey Hartman today on Mission and Likeness. Welcome to Mission and Likeness. My name is Scott, and we appreciate you joining us, whether you're watching us on YouTube or on the brand new lovelocalpa.com. Uh, thanks for joining us. Uh, I really, really do appreciate it. This is our first uh release on Thursday. We dropped a whole bunch of episodes, or a whole bunch. We dropped four episodes uh, on February 1st, and now every Thursday we're going to be launching a new mission and likeness. And honestly, the I'm, I'm super thrilled with what we have done so far, and I'm really excited to uh, get into some of the, the conversations that we're going to be having. We have the next five or six episodes already uh, in the works with guests. And so that's going to be great. So today we're talking about where is it hardest to follow Jesus? And the list was kind of, it was kind of obvious, like some of the places where it would be hard to follow Jesus. And some of them I, I really didn't think would, would be on the list, but they are. Uh, the, but the, the fact is the number of Christians being persecuted for their faith is increasing and and that is worldwide and we we definitely see uh, christian uh, people coming to faith becoming christians in a lot of these persecuted areas and we see christians falling away at a higher level in areas that are less persecuted. So what does that mean for the current state of our church? What does that mean for the future of our church? Uh, we're going to be getting into that with um, Corey Hartman later on in the episode. So definitely stick around for that. We're excited to have him here. Um, a couple weeks ago, I it was actually around Christmas time whenever this happened. So you know, it's a little a little over a month now, uh, but the fl- the the flu or colds or whatever went through the family, and I just began having all of these these ear issues, and I've had ear issues for pretty much all of my life, and just the other day went to the doctor and um, realized all the wax that had been building up in my ear, finally got all of that taken care of. Gross, I know. Uh, but f- found out that I have a like fully ruptured eardrum. And so that's fun. I'm like practically, well, pretty much deaf in my left ear. So I only have my right ear. So I'm a little interested to see how talking with Corey is, is going to go later on. But um so trying to to plan getting you know that patched and all of that kind of stuff done, but that really shouldn't interfere with any of our upcoming content. Uh, so that is the level of persecution that I've been going through is just not being able to hear what people are saying. And though I feel like my kids at this point are starting to take advantage because they know if they're talking like over here behind my back, I have no idea what they're saying. So that's kind of the little running thing at our house right now is the fact that dad can't hear anything. You know, they are super awesome. Um, whenever we found out that I had ruptured the eardrum, you know, um, I was explaining to my boys, you know, who again are seven and six, almost eight and six. 
And, you know, I said, like, I can't hear anything out of this ear. And immediately my youngest son, Asher, who is the hot head of the family, uh, in his typical response to things is like, I don't care, whatever. So what? Um, who cares? Like those kinds of things. He immediately ran over to the couch and, uh, prayed for my ear to be healed. So that was kind of like a super cool thing uh, to have. But so that's just kind of what's been going on with me. Um, also, just a quick plug for um, our chats, our local chats. So that is a new series that's going to be coming out. Uh, so ch- go over to the website, uh, go to projects and go down to chats and you can uh, find some of those things happening there. That's just kind of uh, the place where we're going to be communicating all the ins and outs of what's happening and casting some vision here at Love Local. So where would you say is the hardest countries to follow Jesus? Now, whenever I saw the headline, my my mind immediately went to Middle East, um, Middle East. And, um, for some reason I, I thought like China, it'd be really difficult to follow Jesus in China just with how they structure everything there. Uh, but Christianity today came out with this article. Uh, I don't even know when, uh, it's fairly recent. Uh, January 19th is when it was published and it's talking about the 50 countries where it's hardest to follow Jesus. And, pretty much taking the cake um, for the last several years has actually been North Korea. Uh, and it's led the the list from Open Doors, who puts out this list, ever since 1992, when they began tallying uh, the cost of following Jesus in other countries. Um, but since then, Afghanistan where the Taliban has just recently taken over. Like, this is recent events. Um, if, you, if you remember back in the summer when, you know, we had the whole uh, crisis happening overseas uh, in Taliban and Americans were stranded there and uh, there was the attack on the airport as we were trying to get people out of Afghanistan. Um, since then, uh, the Taliban has been targeting Christians. And so Afghan believers... Uh, had to leave the country, relocate. Uh, many lost everything they had. Many uh, were killed. And uh, in, in the article, they quote uh, one person said, uh, "Quote before the Taliban, it wasn't great, but it was good." Uh, and and so that kind of just goes to show, like it wasn't great, but it was good. Um, they were they were allowed to to worship freely, but now. Um, now Christians are living in fear. This is that person talking again, living in fear, in secret, and totally underground. And we've talked before, you know, here on Mission and Lightness, just about how here in America, you know, we we do need to really wake up. We we need to look around and be able to identify, you know, there are believers, there are brothers and sisters in Christ that are really struggling when it comes to their faith and not spiritually struggling, but physically struggling, they are being completely um, targeted. I mean, they are losing their lives. They're being martyred. The number of Christians that have been martyred uh, is is increasing as well. So this uh, article says that over uh, overall, 360 million Christians live in nations with high level 
of persecution or discrimination. That's one in seven Christians worldwide. And so I think the the, the current uh, estimate of the number of believers is like 2.2, 2.4 billion believers. And so this 360 million, that's one in seven, live in high levels of persecution. That would include one in five believers in Africa, two in five believers in Asia, and one in, five, uh, one in 15 in Latin America. So that's the one that kind of surprised me. The, the African or Asian kind of Middle Eastern persecution wasn't as surprising to me, but one in 15 Christians in Latin America now experience high levels of persecution. So that's that's just a, a great reason for us to here in America to, to refocus our prayers uh, and for those that serve as missionaries in those areas just to keep them in our prayers and to really try to figure out how can we help and assist and then Ultimately, how how do we here in America, where we aren't facing these kinds of persecutions, how how can we change our perspectives from thinking that our Christian walk is all about our comfortability instead of following Jesus? These Christians are willing to be persecuted in order to follow Christ, and you know, I just wonder. What what would happen if that comes to America? I'm not saying that there wouldn't be Christians in America willing to die for their faith, but those that are just here because they want, or they, you know, they go to church and they do the activities because it's fairly easy and it's nice social time for them. What would what would happen then? You can read the full article over at Christianity Today, and I would definitely encourage you to do that. But uh, here's the top. 10 countries where it's hardest to follow Jesus here in 2022. Number one is Afghanistan. Number two, North Korea. Three, Somalia. Four, Libya. Five, Yemen. Six, Eritrea. Eritrea? I don't know how to say that country. Seven is Nigeria. Eight is Pakistan. Nine, Iran. And the really interesting thing about Iran, I'm trying to get... um, his, he goes by the surname of, of Nehemiah, or the alias of Nehemiah, uh, but he has done a lot of evangelism work uh, over in the Middle East, and he he has said uh, in, in private conversations um, just about how the church is exploding in places like Afghanistan and in places like Iran. Uh, you can actually go over, there's an episode talking to... Um, Middle Eastern missionaries uh, on the Gospel Roots podcast, which is another podcast that we produce. Uh, we'll put the the link somewhere uh, on YouTube in the in the bio, and we'll make sure that we put it on uh, lovelocalpa.com. But uh, myself, Adam Michael, and uh, another gentleman within the organization, or who was in the organization at the time of the recording, are talking with this Nehemiah as far as supporting and uh, discipling and developing these Christian leaders over the Middle East. It has been amazing. And then number 10 in this list of top 10 countries uh, is India. And so 
definitely areas that need a lot of prayer. Uh, And so they quoted someone else that has said, it has become increasingly clear that Christians and minority groups cannot count on the security apparatus for their protection, which means they can't count on government. They can't count on uh, the, you know, the federal government or the local governments. They are completely unprotected. And so they have to rely on each other. They have to rely on network and, and trust. Can you even imagine the trust that you would need to have in people to be willing and able to come together as believers, knowing that someone could be a decoy just so that they can turn them in? I mean, it's, it is crazy, crazy to think about. So head over to Christianity Today uh, and, and check out this article, The 50 Countries Where It's Hardest to Follow Jesus in 2022. So... I want to move on uh, quickly, not because that's not important, but because we're already running out of uh, <laughs> we're already running out of time in this opening monologue. But uh, I saw another article today. This one out of uh, the Gospel Coalition, and it's by Trevin Wax, and it says "Gotcha sermon clips are bad for the church." And I've seen this going around a little bit on social media uh, from people saying, "You know, is it bad to have these gotcha clips?" Um, and you know, I, whenever someone says a gotcha clip uh, from a sermon, I don't know if it's because I'm listening to the rise and fall of Mars Hill um, that Christianity Today put together, but I keep thinking of all of the sermon clips, you know, that you hear from Mark Driscoll that some are not good, others completely taken out of context just to make him look bad. And, and I, I don't. I'm not here to discuss, you know, where you fall on either issue, but I just wanted to briefly talk about the the idea of posting these sermons and, and, and these these little sermon clips that people put out. And you know, this isn't new, really. You know, gossip about sermon clips and getting people to talk about what the sermon uh, has been about at churches has been around forever. I mean, even before video came out, even before audio came out. People have always been, you know, spreading ideas around town about, oh, well, did you hear what this pastor said? And did you hear what the other pastor said? And and it's just it's just the reality that that people are going to be talking about what is being preached on. But I think the important thing to remember is why you would want to be posting these clips in the first place. If it's just to get attention, if it's just to get people to talk, that may not be the best thing, but I'll give some final thoughts here in just a second. This is Mission Lightness only on Love Local. Knowing the principles and values of the businesses and organizations that you support is growing more and more important each and every day. That's why here at Love Local, we are building a community of people that support businesses like yours and share in your beliefs. So if your business or organization would like to partner with us and help us build that culture and community, visit lovelocalpa.com backslash partner and fill out our free partnership form today. So should your church be posting sermon clips on YouTube or on social media? And I guess the I would say yes, but don't make it a different sermon than what he's actually preaching. If it falls in line with what the context of the sermon is, then great.
Our mission here at Love Local is to help shape a culture through entertaining and engaging content that unites followers of Jesus together and helps us to live out the gospel each and every day. We would love for you to join us on that mission. All right, so welcome back to Mission and Likeness. Uh, so we've already talked a little bit about uh sermon clips and like how you can put out sermon clips that are kind of give you that gotcha experience. But what I would caution with that is um, if it's not representative of what your church is doing, you don't want to give a false uh, illusion of the atmosphere that your church has. Uh, And so that's all that I wanted to kind of finish off with that. So I'm being joined by author Corey Hartman, who is on the team with the Future Church Company, and uh, they have a new book out, which is called Future Church, which we'll talk about here in a minute. But Corey, thank you so much for joining me. Thanks so much for having me, Scott. So I want to talk first about what would you say is the status of the American church today in what is it late january 2022 where's the american church 37 (laughs) (laughs) i don't know i don't know um it says you know uh what's the status on what scale right are we are we measuring the american church what is the status I, i would i would say that some words that might describe the status of the american church are restless hopeful, contrasting with hopeful, discouraged, divided, um, and then maybe a word like anticipating, waiting for something to happen, that something's going to happen, maybe a bad thing, but hopefully a good thing, but we know that we're moving in some way and things aren't going to continue to be the way they are now and certainly the way they were before COVID-19 changed a lot of things in a lot of churches. So with that, uh, the biggest shift that I've seen has been the lack of unity within the church. So we've seen uh, people moving to go to different churches. We've seen people just going offline or I guess online uh, to, to view churches. And so the, the idea of church has kind of evaporated a little bit. Would you, would you agree with that? Well, that's a, that's a good point. Um, I'm not sure I would say evaporated, but I would say that it is significantly shaken. You know, it, it, it makes me think of the phrase in scripture um, that is in the Old Testament, but then is quoted in Hebrews about things being shaken, you know, uh, and, and yet God's kingdom remains, right? Yeah. You know, and we're undergoing a shaking. I mean, we're undergoing a major shaking. We have been and we still are. And in that shaking, part of what is shaking is the concept of what is church. And so people have inherited a concept of what church is that they did not invent, and rightly so, uh, that they did not invent it. But the concept of church that people who have been in church, for that matter, people who haven't been in church, have 
is not necessarily and very often in many respects really is not the church as is described in the New Testament. So there's a variety of other elements that have sort of glommed onto it over the decades and centuries and millennia that then come under significant um, pressure and in many ways are shaking. And though that can be both um, negative in the experience of it, but it can also be positive as it can provide the opportunity to rethink what actually is this thing that Jesus founded and died for and brought into existence supposed to be anyway? Yeah. And, and the one thing that I think that is important to realize is the the Christian life is not easy. You know, we're faced with all of these things being thrown at us all the time. And I, I opened up the show uh, with a with an article from Christianity Today where it listed the 50 countries where following Jesus will be hardest in 2022. And and we see in the Middle East and we see in Asia and Africa, the, the number of Christians from external sources making life hard for Christians on the rise. But here we're talking about almost an, an internal conflict within the church because these are church members who are now wondering you know what are we doing what what is the mission and and what's the purpose of all of this and so how do you even begin to identify or when you look at a church be able to say what's the real problem yeah that that's a that's a great point so I want to talk about that what is the real problem but before that I just want to make a comment about the external pressures versus internal pressures for a second and think about that in the American context. And and this might apply to other places. I think it applies to Canada somewhat, although it's a very different situation, Canada, yada, yada. But, But within the United States, we have a situation where Christians, just about whoever you are, if you're asked what is the enemy of Christianity, you can pretty quickly, or who, that might be a better way to put it, who are the enemies of Christianity? You can pretty quickly think of public figures, especially political figures, or other prominent individuals that you would say, that guy right there, that woman right there, that person is an enemy of Christianity. If he had it his way, if she had it her way, they'd be coming for us with you know torches and pitchforks and we'd all be dead. Now, the interesting thing is, depending on your racial and ethnic background, that has a significant um, determining factor as to who you name as being that influence negatively on Christianity, right? Right. Um, and so it, but but not solely. That's just, but but that is a significant factor. But in the meantime, also within churches, we Christians have been so thoroughly influenced by and discipled in the competing worldviews of the world around us that then we sprinkle a few Bible verses on top yes. of to baptize one side doing on the right doing it this way, the side on the left doing it that way, that I would say that the biggest enemies for us is in fact the enemy within 
that the enemy within, that the, that the biggest enemy of the church in the United States, in my opinion, is ourselves who have heavy-duty biases for and against certain things socially and politically and culturally that then we believe is a biblical bias and not just a cultural bias that has a little bit of biblical frosting over the top of the cake. And so then we fight each other off of those biases. And the COVID-19 pandemic provided the fantastic opportunity for the great resort, right? Because in those moments that Few, few churches were open and you generally couldn't go. It was never an easier time in history if you were not satisfied with your church to cut and run. It was oh, super easy to do it, right? Totally. And so it provided the opportunity to do what people might have been wanting to do anyway. And then the the politicization of the pandemic, the uh, uh, racial um, challenges that then reemerged in a big way with the murder of George yeah. Floyd and so forth at that time. And um, although I said murder, so that betrays something about my own opinion about it, right? <laughs> sure. um, and and then uh, the, the 2020 election, um, plus everybody's gripes that they already had about their church, about things large and small, you know, down to like, I, you know, they don't play the songs I like or whatever that were happening before the pandemic, right? They now give people the chance to just find new places, new seats on different buses, or just, you know, quit the buses entirely and stay home. Well, yeah. And, and the number of people that are using, I'm not ready to come back, you know, because of COVID or, you know, whatever. I mean, that number is high too. They're, they're just using COVID as a scapegoat to just not be held accountable in a church and, frankly, not worship. Um, so, yeah, there, there is. No shortage of things that are um, going awry at this point. And, and when you mentioned about sprinkling a little bit of you know the gospel or Christianity on top of it, you know Chandler uh, Matt Chandler did a series where he talked about that too. And you know his point was if you're looking at the Christian life as simply being social and then sprinkling Jesus where it's um, acceptable you're not living a Christian life. And, and I think that we have completely swapped out um, our calling and our mission where we're looking at the church from a, well, how would I design it? You know, what what are my, that's why you have people, you know, with the rise of social media being able to completely go crazy by throwing the worship pastor under the bus because they don't play enough hymns or they play too many hymns or, you know, the pastor's sermons go too long. I mean, we've created this recipe for almost disaster within the church. The comfort is knowing that even the gates of hell can't prevail against the church, which is encouraging. But what do we do? I mean, how how do we sustain or how do leaders in the church and, and, and I don't even want to throw all of this on leaders too, because you know, members of the congregation, a lot of them are to hold their leaders accountable. So how do we come to a reasonable understanding? How does that truth come to the top where everyone knows it? Yeah, that that is an outstanding question. I, I think that in the broadest possible answer to that question is that Christians, both 
church leaders and church non-leaders need to take the time to go deep into the scope and scale and depth of the problem of church, okay? Church as we know it, which we did not invent, but we inherited. And just like anything, think about think about your family. Um, if you ever got married, um, I know you're married, Scott. Yeah. If you ever got married, or if you're ever in a long-term relationship with somebody, with a boyfriend or a girlfriend, the sort of relationship where you're spending a lot of time with that other person's family, you start discovering, don't you, that there are all kinds of things that you thought were completely 100% normal that you find, oh no, only my family does this. Yes. This isn't this isn't actually universal, is it? Yes. Right? I mean, and you, I mean like that's that's sort of a rite of passage in that, right? Um, but because you're living in it, cause you're living in your own family, like you don't know how weird your family is. I know. Right. Yes. I, I, one example comes to my mind real quick. Uh, my wife was, she so calls me out on this. So my family, you know, you've had pancakes and sausage or pancakes and bacon for breakfast, right? Yes. I've had that. Have you ever added dill pickle to it? Oh my gosh. That's horrible. <laughs> it is the greatest thing ever. Oh so gosh. That's my wretched. family, my family does this. <laughs> And the first time my wife comes over uh, while we were dating, and I said, we're, oh, we're having pancakes and sausage. And uh, she's like, why are there pickles? <laughs> and I'm like, try it. But I'm telling you, she is a believer in it now. So okay. that's just one thing. But So try it, maybe. I don't know. Uh, if not, if not a pickle person. <laughs> yeah. But, but yeah. But yeah. So, I get your point. So the thing is, we, we are all raised, so to speak, in um, – in, our, our preconceptions of church. Now, what's interesting is, depending on your background, you might have floated to different places. Like, for example, I know that you were raised in a Roman Catholic background. You're not currently part of a Roman Catholic church. You're part of a you know low church, evangelical, Protestant, non-denominational yeah. kind of thing, right? So totally different. So you actually have some life experience where you can say, all right, here's two very different ways to do church. And so that enables you to step back a little bit. And so some of us who have had some of those experiences in different churches are able to see, oh, there's more than one way that you can do certain things. And yet the vast majority of us, and I certainly include myself in this, have still had a, a church experience that is entirely based in one country. Yeah. At one time in history, yeah, right? The United States of America in the late 20th and early 21st centuries. That's it. And so, so even though you can get a great deal of diversity within that, if you really push yourself on it or are pushed, and as God leads you in that, there's still certain limiting criteria. One of the things I love about history and studying history is that it is like a travel journey. It is like a journey around the world. It is taking you to other places and times where they didn't have all the same assumptions that we did. They might have assumptions that we say, oh my gosh, that was really stupid. How could they have done that? But then you also see things like, wow, that's really amazing. Why yeah. aren't we doing anything like what they did You know, back in those days? Um, and, and the same is true if you're to go around the world and truly try to be a global Christian and understand that two-thirds of Christians in the world live in the two-thirds world. I mean, only one-third of Christians on the planet live in the West. So um, what we need to, to come back around to it is we need a much deeper dive into the problems that we find ourselves in 
deep enough that we don't just snatch at the simple answer. Oh, well, we just need X and then everything will be fine. This isn't a quick fix. Not a quick fix. This is a generational sort of fix. But a a major part of that fix, a significant part of that fix, um, one of the true non-negotiables in it is, and I know this is what this podcast is all about, is about elevating mission Mm -hmm. and clarity around mission to be the touchstone and the driver for every congregation but also for every disciple of Jesus Christ, for every disciple of Jesus Christ to realize that this applies to me, that the things in the Bible, like the last words of the gospel of Matthew, right? Go and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the father, the son, and the Holy spirit, teaching them to obey everything that I've commanded you. That that is something that doesn't just apply to my pastor. It doesn't apply to some missionary it applies to me. But from a church leader point of view, it also means recognizing the reality that the functional great commission of the church in North America is go into all the world and make more worship attenders, baptizing them in the name of small groups and teaching them to volunteer a few times a month. Yes. Right? I mean, basically the way ministry has been structured for the last 20 to 30 years has been if we can just get more people to do those things, well, hopefully they're going to be better followers of Jesus with more of the fruit of the Spirit that way. And that is not a safe assumption. And I think that that the conduct, frankly, um, of many people naming the name of Christ in our place and day is evidence that those things are not enough. Yeah, especially in the West, we've become so... Um, it's almost, we wear it as a badge of honor that we support so many external ministries. And I'm not saying that that's bad, but when you say, what are you personally doing to advance the kingdom? People don't have a, a, a solid mindset on, well, I'm doing this and this and this, it's, oh, well, well we donate, like we, we tithe. The church does all of that. And, and we've, we've thrown all of that weight on the church and, and, and people just get lost in it. And so how, how do we, well, before I go there, uh, the other thing that we, we tend to do is, oh, we have a problem in the church. We're going to launch a, a Sunday sermon series that's going to tackle this, or we're going to launch this new program over here that's going to work it. In the name of trying to fix the problem, we may temporarily fix that problem as we develop another one in, like you said, getting people to volunteer to fill those positions. We see the church as positional. Like, do we have enough volunteers? And if we do, is there enough money in the bank to to fund this? Great. Give it a go. And then it just runs its course and it dies out. People get frustrated. And so how, how do we even begin evaluating what is disciple making? And as, as you put it in the book, you and uh, uh, Will, disciple faking. How do you even begin to look at that? Yeah. So let's do it this way. Let me ask you something and we'll see, we'll see where this goes. So think for a second, Scott. 
if there was one experience that you had in your life, okay? So one experience that you had in your life that if you could, if you could scale it up so that every follower of Jesus in your church could have it, you would want every single one to have that experience, okay? So think think about just, it doesn't have to be perfect, but yeah. think of an experience that you had in your life that was like a game changer for you as a follower of Jesus, that you wish that every single person could have it, what would it be? What uh, might it be? All right, we got 20 seconds here. I would say a uh, good friend of mine who was on the podcast, Pastor Brian and I, uh, and three other guys, we get together, we get into God's word, and we start by going around and praying for each other and lifting each other up in prayer, lifting our community up in prayer, and then we dig into God's word to find the root of who God is and what he's done. Those moments I wish every believer could experience. Okay. Okay. So that is a great, great example. So that experience that you just described, would you call that an organized event of the church? Hmm. I'll give my answer in just... 15 seconds, because I do want to give our on-air sponsor, which is kind of where we are talking, because all these things kind of go around what what Will Mancini and Corey Hartman wrote in their book, Future Church, Seven Laws of Real Church Growth. Um, I'm about a third of the way through this book. And if you're anything like me, every page, I am just wondering how Will and Corey have gotten into my brain and into my experience of what is happening in the church. And and the thing I love about this book is it is practical. It is biblical, probably most importantly, but it's practical as well. And it gives you not just the problem, but it begins to tear down of the where we are and says, here's how we pivot and here's how we begin to evaluate these kinds of things. So go pick up Future Church. Uh, it's available online or, and in bookstores. So check it out there. Future Church, Seven Laws of Real Church Growth by Will Mancini and Corey Hartman. So catch me back up. The question was, would you call, is it organized? Would you, would you call that you and those two other guys, would you call that an organized event of the church? No. Okay. So... When I ask this question, and when Will asks this question, and, and others of us on our team, when we ask this question of church leaders, most of the answers that they give of the one thing that they would give to everybody else is not a church-organized activity. Now, I want to be very clear. This, that reality is not saying that church-organized activities are bad, and it's also not even saying that church organized activities are unimportant. They are important, okay? But it's the reality that for most of us, most of the experiences that have had the biggest impact on us as disciples has been at a fairly intimate level of engagement uh, with other human beings in a way that is the initiative of those human beings itself. It's not something that was planned for us, but it was something that we together 
um, have opted into in a big way where there's a pretty close relational distance and God and his word and his truth and living his way is a significant part of that. Right. And so that sort of thing, that's that it gets a lot deeper than this, but think about those sort of moments. You thinking about it, Scott, our listeners thinking about it, think about those moments as the character or the quality or the color or the flavor of what we mean by disciple making. Disciple making is people helping people trust and follow Jesus. That's not my own definition, but that's a definition that I borrow because I think it's a good one. It's people helping people trust and follow Jesus. So if the church, the organized entity is not nurturing, fostering, cultivating, encouraging, and even floating and riding on a lot of that stuff happening, then the organized stuff doesn't have the power and doesn't have the usefulness that it ought to have that God intends that it have, right? And so the it's moving the finish line for leaders to say, what would it be like if we could start over and really organize this thing so that Scott and two guys meeting and praying and reading scripture and talking about this together was the main thing that people thought of when they thought of church. That the main people in our thing that people in our church thought of, if we said your church, that they're thinking about those relationships they have with other people, people who are currently following Jesus, people who aren't following Jesus yet that are in those spaces and in those yep. moments, right? And that that is the that is the heart of it. Because, hey, let's face it, those of us whom God called into full-time Christian ministry, that's what we got called into it to do. You know, Dave Rhodes, who's another one of the principals of our company, one of the things that he says that has just hit me so much is that every church leader goes into ministry to make disciples but then finds that they got suckered into running a church. Yeah. They got suckered into running a church, but that's not that's not what they went there to do, right? right. In the first place, right? So so there's a there's a major um, reformation that is needed to make that the main activity in the lifeblood of of our conception of church and our lived reality of church. So what happens though because I I would say most churches understand that we need to get more intimate in in our settings. So true disciple growth, we'll say, happens at a, a more intimate level. I mean, sure, you can set the stage and the foundation in, in a big corporate setting, but that true discipling happens most of the time in a small uh, in a small environment. So why why is it bad for a church to just say, Small groups. We're just going to divide people up into small groups. There, done. Discipling is happening. Yeah. Where's so, where's the argument? There? So first of all, that's not bad to do that. It's not inaccurate, but it is inadequate. Okay. And so, and here's here's what I mean by that. Let let's let's try to strip away as much as we can the spiritualized um, language that we overlay over what we're doing in small groups for just a second. Sure. And let's, let's think real like hard, cold, cynical business way (laughs) thinking about small groups. What are small groups for? What is the main deliverable of small groups? 
the main function of small groups in a church is to get people who are coming to the really big thing where there are musicians and a good talker on the platform to get relationally stuck to other people so that they don't get bored and leave out the back door of the church. That's Corey's definition, not mine. <laughs> I mean, but it's true. It's, it is it's true. true. It is 100%. true. Like that's that's a major reason that we have the thing. I mean, the, yeah. like small groups were innovated primarily in churches that in the book we call the New Permission Era, um, which was the 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 cutting edge of church growth in the 80s and 90s, mm-hmm. but which has continued on to this day and is highly influential, where you started to see the mushrooming of mega churches in American suburbs, right? You, you started to see it during that time. And small groups or cell groups, as they were originally called, they were invented so that a church could get enormous to the point that People don't know other people in the church, and yet people know just enough people in the church that they don't leave out the back door so the church can get even bigger than it was before. I mean, like that functionally is is how it happens. Now, like again, that's a super cynical definition. And I'm not saying that there aren't real, real valuable things. I mean, I've been in small groups for years, and sure. there's been enormously important and valuable things that I've experienced in small groups. But the small group vehicle itself is not it does not accomplish disciple making, right? Just like your Toyota doesn't automatically get you to the beach, right? right? I mean, like you still need to drive the Toyota to the beach. So you still, you still need to have an intention of where that thing is going. So, you know what? So small groups aren't dead and they're not to be rejected per se. They can be useful in a ministry strategy. They may not be useful. There are some churches that I know that they're kind of, you know, losing the focus on the six to 12 person small group. And they're focusing on both smaller things, you know, a discipleship group of three to four people and also somewhat larger things, a group of like 60 to 80 people. Right. And so, so they're, they're focusing on those sizes of groups and, and, you know, so it, it depends for your own church on what your ministry strategy is. Small group is not good or bad, but a small group itself is not doing disciple making. It's not. Right. You have to develop disciples to minister in small groups. The small but we have it backwards. We like we say, here's a small group, now make disciples instead of, hey, we have disciples, let's get that into a small group setting so that they can create and develop more disciples. Precisely. Yeah. Um, so we have it like a minute left. And I, I just want to say again, to go out and pick up future church, um, biggest takeaway in, in writing this book and what you wanted your audience to get out of it is what? Biggest single takeaway is that the difference between real church growth and church growth that isn't real is the flip side of what we call the seven laws. We have these seven laws of real church growth, and I'm not gonna not gonna run them down right now, but I'll just t- tell you the first one, okay? Because this program is about mission, okay? The first law of real church growth is what we call the law of mission, that real church growth starts with a culture of mission, not worship. Meaning this, okay? If you start with the mission, you will get worship, sir. You, you, I'm sorry. If you start with the mission, you will get worshipers. 
if you start with worship, you will get worship services. And the difference between those is as big as any difference in the world. Go out and get Future Church. Uh, Will Mancini, Corey Hartman. This was Mission and Likeness. Thanks for joining us. See you next time.